All right, let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thankful for this day, thankful for this Lord's Day, um, the opportunity to be gathered as your people, or um, the opportunity now, before worship, to study in Sunday school and to have this time of uh, discussion and um, and study, talk together, and meditate together. And for the blessing of your spirit, we pray for your help um, as we attend our heart and minds um, to these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we are um, continuing a, a little series on First John that we began two weeks ago. The goal is going to be to uh, cover First John in the next um, six weeks or so today and um, into the um, uh, remaining Sundays in April and then in the Sundays in May um, to look at First John together in that manner. Um, two weeks ago when we began, um, you know, I made some introductory kind of comments about First John in terms of background and author and um, key themes, those kinds of things. And then we read First John together. I read it out loud to you so you could hear it all at once. Um, that is such a powerful way to hear God's Word um, in that way. Um, not just reading little segments of it, but hearing an entire letter um, at one time. Um, anybody spending time looking at First John the past couple weeks, reading through it, listening to it? Ari's nodding. That's great. I love it. Any, uh, any insights, anything that came out of that, Ari, for you? What did you do? Yes. Yes, yeah, I love that section, um, that when our heart condemns us, then our hearts, um, as John says, that's great. Anybody else have any experience with First John in the last two weeks you want to share about or think about, talk about? Well, I would continue to just commend that to you um, as a practice as we're going through um, this letter um, over the next six weeks or so. Um, just listening to it out loud, I think, is really powerful, and letting it um, sort of wash over you and hear hear those repeated words, hear um, the Scripture speak to you in that way, hear the Apostle speak. Um, this morning, um, uh, a look at, hopefully, the entirety of the first chapter um, of 1 John and, and see the way that he introduces some of these key themes and ideas um, that will come um, throughout the rest of the book. Um, I'm going to read now, um, in a moment, the first uh, four verses of 1 John. But before I do that, I want to kind of put before you the beginning of the Gospel of John. Um, as I've noted, that this is the same man who wrote both of these um, documents. And I think it's interesting, um, 1 John, of course, the first 18 verses, the prologue to John, um, is, you know, has... is well-known as, right, one of the most important, dense theological um, pieces of writing in the New Testament. Um, but I think there are actually a lot of similarities to the prologue um, to John's epistle um, as from his gospel. I want to just let you hear that. So here's John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's John 1, now 1 John 1, the first four verses. Let's look at some of the similar themes and words. And John writes, this is how he begins the letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, upon and have touched with our hand concerning the word of life. The life made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to 
you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you Greek word there, communion, communion with us, and we our fellowship, our communion is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may See your footnote in your Bible, um, it'll say, some manuscripts say, your joy complete, our joy, your joy. I think there's a complexity there. Um, to, the, to the joy that is completed. Um, it's fascinating. I, I think there's so much dense stuff happening here in this prologue um, to John's epistle. Um, it's very unlike, of course, um, uh, the epistles of Paul, where Paul identifies himself and identifies the readers and um, gives a short um, greeting, that kind of thing. Um, John's here he just dives right in just like he does in his gospel right um, that which was from the beginning that which we have heard etc etc seen with our eyes um, uh, and yet the scale to me at least feels um, more intimate in some ways than the beginning to um, his gospel um, John here is is testifying to something that he has experienced um, to something that he has touched he says he's looked upon with his eyes um, concerning the word of life. It's interesting to me um, um, that Jesus is uh, the word um, in John's epistle, just as he is in his gospel in that prologue, uh, but he's also now the word of life. Um, he is the word that, that gives life, um, the word that possesses life and, and shares that life with others. Um, uh, John says, the life was made manifest. So Jesus, notice that how he's referring to Christ, of course, um, here. Uh, the word of life, he calls him, and then he just calls him the life, um, which is a really interesting way to describe our Lord, um, that he is simply the life. And, of course, that comes out of Jesus' own testimony about himself, right? Um, I've put down there um, some of the words of Jesus um, uh, lower down on the page that John is certainly uh, ruminating on and, and thinking about as he writes um, of his Lord. Um, Jesus is the one that said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then he describes himself um, and says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? That's what he says to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Um, uh, he is life itself. Um, and certainly this is true particularly um, after his resurrection from the dead, which is the time in which John uh, writes these words. Um, it seems also to me this, this emphasis that John is giving us on his apostolic identity, right? That, um, that he, has, um, he is familiar with the word of life. He is familiar with this person he calls the life, um, this divine person that he calls the life, because um, he has seen the life with his eyes, our eyes, he says, referring really not only to himself, but also to the apostolic company. He has looked upon the life. He has touched it with his hands. Um, there's an incarnate kind of sense to this witness that John bears here, right? Um, it, it seems to me that there's a lot of connection here um, with uh, John 20, um, where, remember, Jesus comes um, after his resurrection from the dead, and he stands in the upper room with the disciples. They're behind locked doors, but that's no problem for Jesus. He appears among them, and then he, he comes close to them, right? Close enough that he can uh, breathe on them. Um, he breathes life into them. It's a kind of a, a picture. It's an intimate picture. It's a picture, I think, that goes back to Genesis 2, um, where um, God breathes uh, the spirit of life into Adam and makes him live. Um, Jesus does that same thing um, to his disciples. And he says there after his resurrection in John 20, he says he showed them his hands and his side, right? They look upon the life, the word of life, who lives forevermore, who has died and will never die again. 
Um, and of course, you have the interchange with Thomas, um, which also has to do with Jesus inviting Thomas to, to touch him and see, right? to actually touch his physical flesh and see that it lives, that though he had died, he now lives um, forevermore. Um, and then we have at the very end of that chapter in verse 31, um, John says, Jesus did a lot of other signs that are not written in this book, but these are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, again, that, that theme of, of receiving life um, because of our communion with the one who is himself life, um, which I think is a, a really fascinating thing um, to think about. Um, I write here that John here is speaking of the pre-existence of the Son, certainly, but he's speaking also of his own fellowship with the risen Christ. Um, this fellowship, this communion, this koinonia that he has um, with the living Christ, the risen Christ particularly. Everything that he's going to say in this epistle, in this letter, flows out of this reality, this living communion that John shares um, with the risen Christ. And the risen Christ's communion with the Father, right? Um, John says that um, our fellowship is with not only Jesus, but with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Um, he understands Jesus to be the one who, who provides communion and union um, with the Father um, through himself. Uh, again, remembering the words of Jesus, um, these are direct quotes from Jesus out of, out of John's gospel. John 14, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our with him. Um, we'll, we'll abide with him, right? We'll, we'll, we'll dwell with him. Um, the Father and the Son will do that together. And of course, how do they do that? They do that by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit is for, um, to unite us to the Son and the Father. Um, John 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Um, I mean, I think that's a fascinating verse, right? That Jesus wants his joy to be in us, um, for us to possess the same measure of joy that he has, um, so that our joy may be complete. And according to John here in his epistle, that joy is predicated on fellowship, on koinonia, on communion, on not being alone. Um, it's not good for man to be alone, uh, God says in Genesis 2. And the answer to that is not problem, is not fundamentally marriage. It, the answer to that problem fundamentally is communion uh, with the living God and communion that the living God provides for us with one another in the body of Christ. And, and I think it's really important in this prologue to see how fundamental that communion is uh, for John. Uh, the Christian life, according to 1 John, I write here at the bottom of the page, is a life of communion with God um, through communion with his risen Son and all those who dwell in communion with him, with Christ as well. Um, so, so John is saying um, he wants his readers to have fellowship with himself. Uh, with not just himself, but he says us. He's speaking in the plural, right? All of those who belong um, to the fellowship of God through Christ. And indeed, he says, our koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. There's a sense in which John understands that his joy is dependent upon others coming into this communion that he shares with Jesus. Um, and and, and there. Their shared communion enriches um, their experience of joy um, as they commune um, with the Son and thus with God himself. Uh, koinonia with Christ, fellowship with Christ, union with Christ, means koinonia, union, fellowship, um, communion with God, and union, koinonia, union, fellowship, communion with Christ's body. And this koinonia brings us life and joy. This is the whole purpose for which John uh, writes the rest of his letter in many ways. All right, any, those are some comments from me. Any, any responses or thoughts or comments hearing again? We've been looking at that text there, first four verses in first John. What comes to mind?
Yeah, that's true. I don't know. That's a good question. You're, I mean, you're right. What else, Jeremy? Do you have a comment? Yeah, the we's and us's are important. They speak to the um, to the connection that John feels that he has with his readers um, through, and many of whom he, I, I don't know that this was written initially to just one Christian community. Um, I think it's more likely that it was intended from the beginning, self-consciously for John to be for the church at large, um, you know, for the church in general. Um, but he understands himself to have this organic communion uh, with his readers, even if they're people that he has never has never met, has doesn't know personally. Um, and I, yeah, that those pronouns are really significant. I think that's it's interesting, um, Jeremy. What you're saying, I think he's right. Even when he brings hard words, um, he's doing so in a way that where there's a there's a, uh, a connection between him and the reader and the readers with one another. Yeah, which is which is fascinating in terms of just how language works and shapes our understanding of who we are. Anything else? What are other thoughts about this prologue here? Yeah, Tama. Uh huh. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. This is who Jesus continues to be. Yeah, absolutely. Is this how we think about the Christian life? Is this how y'all think about the Christian life? This kind of rich living communion with God through the Son that includes a rich living communion with one another um, in the body? I hope so. I want us to. Um, I do think it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing um, that John talks about here, um, and and the Christian life really is one that is defined by this uh, union, this fellowship, this koinonia um, that John describes here, and this is the reason for which Jesus took on flesh, um, that he might abide with us, that he might um, be flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. Um, that he might draw us into um, communion with the Father, not from far off, but near, um, that he might be with us in that way and draw us thus into the life of God through himself. 
um, and into communion also with each other um, by his spirit that we share, the one spirit that we share in Christ. Any final thoughts about any of that, the prologue, before we look at the remainder of chapter 1? Yeah. Like you said, really, it talks about that that church lacking more uh, the word of communion, uh, especially really about the gospel. Um, but that the word became us and now we are the church in Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I really do think, too, that in this prologue in First John, um, John is reflecting particularly on um, the, the Christ as he is now, and on the risen Christ, um, who is who is certainly divine, and 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 you know the second person um, existed always with the Father in fellowship, but particularly now that he is he's risen, he's the source of life, um, he is the one um, that they have touched and seen and handled. I think all of that is referring very directly to to their encounters with Jesus after the resurrection. And so in that way, I think you're exactly right, James, that First John is a kind of sequel to the Gospel of John, particularly the last um, several chapters of John, which are you know, some of my favorite chapters in the scriptures, John 20 and 21, um, these encounters that Jesus has with um, his disciples and followers and friends after his resurrection. And it very much seems to me that John is, is writing this as a sort of next chapter in the story. Um, yeah, Thomas, yeah, and even just in the that initial encounter that he has when Thomas is not there, he, it's very physical, you know, this, um, he comes up to them and he, he, you know, gets close enough to them they can feel his breath um, on their faces or on their bodies and suddenly breathes on them um, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, that there's that physicality um, to all of that, you know, how he, he makes them breakfast there in John 21 on the beach. And yeah, it's fascinating to me. All right, well, let's continue on and look at uh, verses 5 through 10. Um, remember, one of the emphasis emphases in um, uh, John 1 is that God is uh, light, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, in him, in the word, was the life and light of men. Um, and now we're going to hear more about that concept of God being light um, and what that means for us in terms of our koinonia, our fellowship. That word fellowship is really key here in the first chapter, uh, what it means to have fellowship with God and what threatens um, our fellowship with him and with one another. So First John 5 through 10, 1, 5 through 10, rather, this is the message we have heard from him, that is from the life, the word of life, and proclaim to you that God is light. Remember Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have koinonia, same word again, fellowship, communion, union with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he as God is in the light, we have fellowship with, communion with one another. It's interesting. He's talking about um, immediately before, if we say we have fellowship with God when we're in the darkness, we're not telling the truth, we're practicing uh, lies. Um, but then he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship. He doesn't say with God, he says with one another, right? Which is interesting um, to see that. I, I don't think he's excluding the idea that we also have fellowship with God as we walk in the light, but he's emphasizing that as we walk in the light, we have fellowship uh, with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So as we walk in the light, and we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus is cleansing us, is washing us, is purifying us from all sin, all sin that we might um, uh, commit 
um, the blood of Jesus um, there being um, a reference fundamentally to his death um, and the continuing effect of his atoning uh, sacrifice for us um, as he uh, intercedes for us, right, at the Father's right hand. This is one of the things that the word of life, the life, um, is doing for us right now. He is interceding uh, for those who belong um, to him. Um, he is memorializing his sacrifice before the Father um, um, so that we might receive mercy. Uh, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Um, so what is it that threatens us walking in the light? Um, for John, it's not fundamentally sin, per se. It's saying we don't sin. We don't need the blood of Jesus. We don't need um, uh, that cleansing um, that he's just referred to. If we say we have no sin, which means we don't need to be cleansed, um, we don't need to be washed, um, you know, might remind us a little bit about John 13 when Peter says, you know, Lord, you shall never wash me. Um, and Jesus says, um, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter says, well, then, you know, not just my uh, feet, but my, heads and my, my head and my hands as well, right? Um, wash all of me. Um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, the truth there is not, I think, just a philosophical concept. Um, it's also personified, right? Jesus is the truth. He's the word of truth. Um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, the word of life, is not in us, and we don't have communion and fellowship with him. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this promise. Um, there's a warning. Uh, if we say we have no sin, etc., then there's the promise. If we confess our sins, he, um, God, or perhaps that refers more directly to the Son. The Son is faithful. Uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he essentially repeats the same um, uh, warning. Um, the, the warning, uh, the, the structure here um, is... There's a promise in verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is, God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Then there's a warning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Then there's a promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's another warning. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So now it's not just us that is a liar when we, you know, that are, we're not just deceiving ourselves when we say we don't sin. Um, we're also calling God a liar. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Again, his word, I think, is the personification of his son. Um, his son does not dwell with us. We don't have communion, uh, koinonia, with his son. Um, so apparently in order to walk in the light... Um, what is required for us is that the word, the truth, be in us. And if the word and the truth is in us, um, not just abstract concepts, but the living Christ, we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we need um, God's mercy and forgiveness. Um, if we resist that, that is a, a sign that God's word, his truth, um, his son, is not in us and that we are not uh, walking in the light, but in the darkness. All right. Um, so I, I, well, I'll just, I'll walk through this stuff here and we'll, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. So the fellowship that John speaks of here requires walking in the light because God himself is light. And there's a deep connection between walking in the light and telling the truth or, or having the truth, possessing the truth. Uh, particularly having truth about ourselves. Um, fascinatingly, I think uh, what John is saying here is that the blood and the death of Jesus actually sets us free to be truth-tellers um, about ourselves, right? Um, about who we actually are um, so that we can be cleansed and have fellowship with one another. And so therefore, 
Um, if not acknowledging your sins is failing to practice the truth, um, then I think we can say, therefore, confessing your sins is a means of practicing the truth, right? And it's interesting to me that John uses that phrase. Uh, truth is not something that you just say or believe. It's something you practice. It's something you embody um, somehow um, in your life. Um, and I think that we do that, of course, as believers, and we do this really radical thing, which is confess our sins to one another um, instead of pretending like they don't exist or just moving on and not talking about it, that we actually confess our sins to God and to each other. However, John does seem to believe that there is a real danger of failing to be truthful about our status as sinners, um, which is interesting, right, that he isolates this as a particular danger. Um, he's not here warning them against, you know, the dangers of, I don't know, whatever um, kind of sin you might imagine. Um, He's warning them about the danger of deception, self-deception particularly, um, being self-deceived he sees as a kind of fundamental danger for Christians. And I'll just say I think that is exactly right in terms of my own experience as a Christian, in terms of my experience as a Christian minister. Um, the greatest danger to people, um, the greatest danger to me is self-deception. Um, in terms of just kind of a fundamental place, um, a, a place where you you cannot see um, your own need, your own um, uh, transgression, um, the ways that you um, are are falling away um, from God, um, that that is something that is dangerous. And so, what is the answer? Um, confession, I think, is what John says. That's inherent to the promise that he gives twice here. Um, Confession cleanses us not only from our sins, but also from our self-deception that we are not sinners. Um, so confession is something we do so that God will forgive us, but confession is also something we practice to protect ourselves against blindness, essentially, against self-deception um, that we know that we're prone to. Um, in contrast, clinging to the um, commitment that we have not sinned makes God to be a liar and breaks his koinonia with us. So I just say, what are the implications of this for our worship, for our relationship with God, for relations with one another in the church, for our marriages, family, friendships, etc.? Um, and then if we have time, we might talk a little bit about what we did the other night, those of you who are here on Monday, Thursday, in terms of confessing our sin. But before we do any of that, any thoughts and about just kind of this prologue, or the, not the prologue, this section of verses here, 5 through 10, this dynamic that, um, that John's talking about? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, John is is First um, John is a, a remarkable epistle against, yeah, what we might say is you know easy believism or something, or um, you know what Bonhoeffer critiqued as cheap grace um, in cost of discipleship. First um, John. integrity in terms of the um, the integrity of our faith um, you know how we live these things out um, becomes uh, just as important as what we say with our mouths that we believe 
yeah, that, and that's a theme that goes all throughout this letter. Um, yeah, James. Yeah. Um, like, like, what are your characteristics about these sure. characteristics yeah. that you're saying to yourself? Yep. And as Christians, we have this word that is given us that is not from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, and that's Christ. And of course, um, what he says to us is how to receive it and what to give it. almost implies implies that one of the ways that the word gets in us, Christ gets in us is through our confession of our sin and his cleansing of us, right? Um, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. It's a very personal thing. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're cleansed by the um, the blood of Jesus that that coursed through his veins. It was shed on the cross. Um, it, I mean, it, do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's very fast. It's just interesting to think about that, that this is the way that the word gets into us, actually, is put in us, is through our confession of sin and his cleansing us from, from those sins. Yeah, Kim. be a powerful apologetic. Yeah, Kim's speaking of the, the way in which um, this is very culturally unusual um, to confess your sins to one another and to confess your sins to an unbeliever can be a, and ask for their forgiveness can be a, a powerful um, witness to them of who you are and how you're different and the work that Christ has done in you. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Sarah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All of this pres- presumes that there is such a thing as sin, that there is such a thing as truth, that there are actual moral violations of a law, divine law, a law that's not subject to human um, interpretation or or deliberation um, yeah I, I occasionally see this um, uh, uh, column in the New York Times called the ethicist I think it's called um, and people write and ask them to solve this person whoever it is I don't know who it is to solve ethical dilemmas you know um, and um, and one of the ones I saw recently was they were asking about, you know, I, I have this grandmother and I love her deeply and I care about her and um, we've always been close, but now she's in a memory facility and she can't, you know, she doesn't recognize me anymore, remember me. Um, do, am, I, am I still obligated to go visit her, basically? Um, because it's really traumatic for me, the person was saying, which, sure, that makes sense. Um, and it's just funny just to see someone who's committed to that kind of secular, you know, like how do you sort through a question like that, you know? Um, and, um, and they couldn't really, right? Um, they certainly couldn't give any kind of firm response to that question. Um, and at, yeah, it is fascinating to think about that, that this, this, all of this presumes that there are, there are actually ethical obligations, right? I mean, they couldn't, that person couldn't go to the fifth commandment, right, and say, well, the, the Bible says, honor your father and mother. And so <laughs> that, that remains true even if they can't recognize you because of the ravages of, you know, disease. And 
um, age, um, uh, they were just scrambling um, for for something. Um, and yeah, uh, it is, and and that's to, yeah, to follow up what Kim was saying, when we confess our sin to an unbeliever, um, we're not only humbling ourselves, we're also pointing in a maybe indirect way to the fact that there is such a thing as sin um, that that can be confessed or should be confessed. Um, um, that there is a moral law that exists outside of ourselves. Yeah, Tim. Who says they have no sin? Um, well, so Tam is asking. Um, what do you do about a person who, who seems to have a righteous life, but but says they they claim not to be, have sin? Well, I think I think you go to. What John says here, and <laughs> pretty directly, and says, right, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I mean, that's what I would say to that. If I, w- if I had the opportunity to sit down with that person, that's what I would say. Look, I'd say, look, the, the authoritative word of God says that if we make this kind of claim about ourselves and we don't have any sin, then we are in, we're self-deceived and the truth is not in us. Um, and so you really need to evaluate. Um, uh, yeah, maybe your life is free from certain sins, potentially. Um, I don't know, but, but certainly all of us... Um, sin on a daily hourly whatever basis um and we're we kid ourselves if we don't think that's true um yeah alexis and then um donovan and mark sure No, absolutely. I think you're right, Alexis. Appreciate you saying that. And and yes, this is, ironically, if you are going to grow in Christian maturity um, and really be wise, that wisdom, that maturity is going to be linked very closely to your ability to see your own shortcomings, right? Your own sins, to really understand that you are a sinner, Um and I, I think I think it's true. I think one of the things that stunts people's growth in the Christian faith is an un, an inability or an unwillingness or um, I don't know um, what it is, but just an inability to st- or or just not seeing their own sin for what it is. Um, it's it's when we see our our sin for what it is that we really can uh, can grow, can repent, to use biblical language. Um, and um, and I think that's yeah, it's only those sins that we're aware of that can, we can really repent of, um, and um, and what a blessing it is when we when we see ourselves for who we are because of the gospel. Yeah, Donovan. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, that's Yes, about against that. That's fascinating. I don't think I've ever met someone who said that I don't have any sin in my life. But you y'all are telling me that that's a thing that happens. That's fascinating. No, no, but even that at one point that he held that. I
You're right. I mean, if, yeah, if that is something that people are believing, then certainly we need to stand against that, <laughs> that doctrinal error. What's that? That teach that. Yeah, it's a very dangerous place to be if you come to believe that. I, the phrase I've used um, before, which I think is helpful, um, is that the Christian life, as you progress Christian life, potentially you begin to sin less in some way. I think that's true and good, and we should strive to be more holy, of course, and expect that we'll become more holy and that we will transgress God's law less heinously, um, maybe even less frequently. But a as we progress in the Christian life, we'll become more aware of the sin that we actually commit. Does that make sense? Like, even though we're sinning less, we'll become more aware of what it is we're actually doing. Um, and I, yeah, if people are saying, I'm just going to stop sinning, that's, yeah, I think that's deceptive. Um, let me see what Mark had. What, what was your comment, Mark, or question? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, and let me just, a few comments. Um, one is, this is why one of the reasons why I think it's really important for us to do what we do each Lord's Day, which is to confess our sin. Um, I think that that's um, such a fundamental practice for us in terms of discipleship. Um, I mean, it, I just think about how it shapes our children, right, to stand and worship and confess their sin and to stand next to their parents and hear their parents confess their sin um, over the years they're, they're growing up. Um, I'm, I didn't grow up in a tradition that had confession of sin ever, um, and I'm, but I'm grateful my children do. I think it makes a big difference. Um, and also just, you know, we did this thing last week um, on Monday, Thursday, that I thought was really helpful, and maybe at some point we'll talk more about that, but where we actually um, confessed our sin not only to God, but actually to one another. And um, those of you that were here for that, I, I think I think it's just something worth reflecting on, what that was like and, and how that there really does, it seemed to me that doing that with one another before we came to the table um, gave a different kind of quality. I'm not it, it, was, it was just good. It was a good thing. I'm not critiquing in any way our normal practice of taking Lord's Supper. But I think it introduced something new and good into our fellowship with one another at the table. Um, and then um, in our meal after um, the service, um, this, this what we did is we went around and said to one another, um, forgive me, a sinner, and then said to one another, God forgives and I forgive. It was a, it was a powerful thing. It's something worth thinking about. Because what we experience in that evening is something we can experience with one another in our lives um, as friends, as fellow members in the church, as um, husbands and wives, as siblings, whatever our relationships with one another are. Um, you know, acknowledging our sin really does, it's so connected to fellowship, um, deepening fellowship between, between people. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, they right John says anyone who practices sinning is not of God or whatever. Yeah. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah. Ah. I see. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah. Every every heresy or has some, you know, some place in the scriptures where they're going to, and yeah, no, that's great. I, we'll talk about that absolutely, and no doubt, John, and like I was saying earlier, John, he is, you know, he's going to hold us to a standard, man. He's going to push us and say, don't, don't be content with, you know, um, just keeping on doing things that are against God, um, which is good. All right, one final, final, final. No, you're fine. Yeah, there's no there's no virtue singling with God. Um, that is absolutely true. No, I appreciate that. Let let's uh, let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Pray that it would dwell richly within us. Um, that we would uh, meditate upon it. I pray that we would, together as a group, um, encounter First um, John in a new way. Even though I'm sure it's a text that these are texts we've studied and thought about before. Um, that you would you would still bring a freshness and a a life unto our discussion and study, um, uh, both here in this hour on Sunday mornings and also as we read and, and encounter First John during the week. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.